Episode 12, Knife versus Gun. What you're about to hear is an event that occurred during my time as a state police officer. Based on true and factual accounts, minor details were changed due to operational security and confidentiality reasons, but not in a way to affect the veracity of this story. This time, he chose to raise the knife above his head, and the sunlight actually caught the side of the large, wide blade. I don't know if it was the reflection of the sun, or the fact that the knife was now on clear and obvious display that made everyone surrounding him finally pay attention and run. But run they did, in all directions, screaming all the way. You know, initially my family wasn't all that pleased when I signed up for a career in policing, particularly at the time that I did, because it was well known to be a dangerous profession. So you can imagine their joy when, after serving for a couple of years, I told them I was going to ride a police motorcycle. I ended up riding those police bikes for quite a few years, which I feel came about from my love of them as a teenager. I have happy memories of the local coppers trying to catch me on my own motorbike as I belted around the fruit paddocks where I grew up, and they never did manage to get hold of me, until the day my bike failed. They gave me a fairly good flogging that day, and I liked it. No, not the flogging, but the fact they dished out a bit of summary justice to discourage me from riding illegally rather than dragging me through the courts and ending up with a record. I can tell you, though, times have changed. There's absolutely no doubt policing has its risks, so if you add riding a police motorcycle at high speed with working by yourself and no partner, that sure does increase the risks. It adds a whole new dimension to policing and your own capabilities, and I'm not embarrassed to say I was smart enough to walk away from the odd incident or two where bravado just wouldn't cut it. Yet I did this because, as the saying goes, every dog has its day, and I always made sure that day came. So this particular day in question started out no different to any other. It was a day shift, and I was rolling around the suburbs on the police motorbike, performing routine patrol duties. I had already backed up the local crime unit a few times at some good value jobs, one of them chasing a couple of crooks who had burgled a house and were jumping the fences to get away. And that's where the manoeuvrability of the bike and the easy access it provides showed its benefits. Now on this day all was well in my world and the patch that I was monitoring until mid-morning or early morning when a job came through that changed it up. Police communications requested that the crime unit I'd been assisting attend an address one suburb to the east of us where a male was reportedly going berserk with a knife. It wasn't known if it was a domestic or a home invasion situation and I immediately informed the comms that I would assist the crime unit. And as I headed off in the direction of the address, multiple updates began to flow in where several witnesses have reported seeing a male running from a house with a large kitchen knife. All of these calls had him running south down the same street as the original complainant, so it was obviously related to the same job. So from an operational perspective, your priorities shift as the circumstances change and you need to determine what is the biggest threat and what receives the greatest priority. Clearly, the immediate concern moved to the original complainant, who 
It's her initial call reported he was in a frenzy with the knife inside the home before he left. It was highly likely she could either be seriously injured or even deceased, so I requested communications to phone the house and attempt to speak to her. Now this serves a number of purposes. If she can answer the phone, we can quickly determine what medical condition she is in. She can also tell us about the demeanour of the offender, provide an update such as his description or any specific information about him. I was relieved to hear she answered the call, but the news wasn't good. She had been stabbed repeatedly in her abdomen by the offender, who she now identified as her boyfriend, and it would appear she was in a serious way. Due to the severity of her injuries and that the crime unit and myself were still a fair distance from the address, police comms instructed a closer unit to attend and to support the paramedics. The victim did manage to inform the call taker that the offender's name was Mark and that he'd been using an unknown drug throughout the night, which had tipped him into the frenzy. Apparently after stabbing her, he had also deliberately cut himself and was now armed with a large knife and had left the house with the intent, apparently, of killing his case manager at his local welfare office. I wasn't too sure if it was the nature of this incident or the way I was pushing that police motorcycle in and out of the traffic at high speed that made those spidey hairs rise up in the back of my neck again. This was one of those jobs that could go a number of ways, none of them pretty. The last call we received from the public was the station master at Redmond's train station. He informed police communications he had observed a male boarding a train to the city with what he thought was a large knife hidden under his arm. This incident was turning into an unpredictable, moving and fluid situation and our priorities and methods would continuously change and update. So in light of the report of the last location and his known intent, both the crime unit and I informed police communications we would redirect ourselves back into our own area where the Federal Train Station and Welfare Office were located. I had the benefit of being on a fast-moving police motorcycle and with its emergency provisions operating, I arrived at the train station well ahead of the crime unit and the slow-moving train, which still had a couple of stops in between. Federal is very typical of the local train stations in this area that were mostly built in the mid-1900s. It has an island-type middle platform with platforms on either side. These long, wide, entirely open platforms were surfaced with bitumen and contained by thick timber sleepers on the edge. It had one small red brick building purposed as a waiting room in the middle and a large wrought iron set of stairs running upwards and over the train lines for pedestrian access. It connected two other train lines so it was a hub station and it provided a direct uninterrupted line into the city so it was always busy. I had arrived with enough time to quickly consult with the station master and we determined the next train was scheduled to stop at the westbound side of the platform in around four minutes. It had just ticked past 9am and even though we were now past the top of peak hour, I knew there would be a sizable number of people still on the platform. I needed to implement a plan that would contain the threat while minimising any risk to others. I estimated there were about 40 plus commuters waiting on the platform for that city-bound train, the one that would have the offender on it. I had to consider that even though the welfare office was his end goal, there were still tens of people on the platform that could be at risk. I also had to factor in he may have already gotten off at a previous station as we hadn't received any reports of a man with a knife on a very busy train. 
This was strange, as considering the time of morning, that train would be six plus carriages long, potentially carrying hundreds of people, and yet not one of them had seen a male with a bloody kitchen knife. I quickly moved along the side of the platform and asked people to leave the platform or to move back from the edge where the train would arrive. This proved a difficult task as apart from having a limited amount of time, the vast majority of the patrons had earplugs or headphones on and I found myself unexpectedly scaring the shit out of them when I touched their arm to get their attention. My quick instruction was as simple as please move back from the edge and away from the stairs or just leave the platform altogether. The lack of time didn't allow me to individually tell them that there was a drug-crazed male on the train that they were about to board and that he was in possession of a large kitchen knife which you just may want to stick you with. Most of those I managed to reach chose to move back rather than leave altogether and there wasn't a great deal I could do about it as I could hear the train approaching. Pete and Janine from the crime unit ran down the stairs in time to see the train beginning to slow. I had known both of them for some time and I was aware they were experienced and well-respected coppers. As the offender was armed, I indicated I thought it best to contain him in the open area of the platform, so we needed to cover each end and not allow him access to the stairs. I suggested they remain together and position themselves near where the front of the train would stop, which was the closest point to those stairs. It made sense for them to cover them, as there was two of them and only one of me, so this offered the greatest security. We took off in opposite directions. As the front of the train passed me, I positioned myself some five, six metres away from the side of the train. This provided me with a buffer to the doors and allowed me to look through the windows as it made its way along the length of the platform in the hope that I could pick him out. She had described him as 24 years of age, just over six foot, medium build, unshaven, and he was wearing a black beanie with a dark blue puffer-style jacket. I was also conscious of the fact we'd been informed it had quite a few criminal convictions, a majority of them serious assaults, and surprise, surprise, most of them committed with a weapon. So in summary, I'm looking for an above-average-sized drug-fucked male who is an experienced weapon user and is here to kill someone, oh, and he's armed with a large kitchen knife which he's already used. My head twisted back and forth, trying to locate the blue jacket and dark beanie, and I had to consider he may have taken off either piece of clothing. I tried to scan as many people as I could, but it was difficult, and by the time the third carriage passed, I was feeling mildly dizzy. The train stopped, and the police radio was quiet, meaning Pete and Janine hadn't spotted him either. Then the doors began to automatically open, and in the middle door of the second last carriage... A six-foot male in a black beanie and dark blue puffer jacket stepped out, and the obvious happened. He eyeballed me and just froze outside the door, while everyone else about him went about their daily lives. Some of those passengers that I'd requested to stand back now mindlessly and automatically walked towards the train to board, and those who had been in the train stepped out and around the offender, some of them even brushing against him, the odd one giving him the get-out-of-the-doorway sort of look. But to him, I couldn't have been any more obvious. I was standing directly in front of him, five, maybe six metres away, in dark blue police leathers, a firearm at my side, and staring straight at him. 
My initial impression was he presented okay, but as they say, looks can be deceiving. There were no obvious injuries or blood on him that I could see, but his clothes covered up all of his skin except for his hands. Years of experience had taught me it's all in the eyes and hands, so with my eyes locked on his, I peripherally noted that his arms were down by his sides, and yet thankfully there was nothing in his hands. It was obvious he was weighing up how to react, so I took the initiative and I called out to him, not loud enough to alarm him or anyone else. Hey Mark, you got a minute? I know he would have heard me, but he didn't react. He continued to stand there, and as he did, the variable swirled through my mind. My priority was to get him away from the train and the crowd, but I didn't want him to panic. But most importantly, I didn't want him back on the train, and I didn't want to cause any risk to any others. Hey mate, can I get you to come over here? I called out. I had positioned my hands against my stomach, as this allowed me the best position for the fastest reaction to my equipment should it be required. I was also conscious of not making any obvious actions which might agitate him to react, so I held against making any movement, not even using the radio. My main concern at this point was the number of commuters still close to him, and I felt if I could keep him calm and contain him a bit longer, they would soon be on the train and out of his reach. However, the standoff didn't last. He reached under the bottom of his puffer jacket and slid out the knife. We do a fair amount of training learning how to combat knives, and I know to rate them as equally dangerous as a firearm. A lot of that training focuses on what equals what. If someone wants to use their fists against you, I'll equal that or step it up with my baton or capsicum spray. They want to produce a firearm, I'll draw mine, and it's the same response if they produce a knife. I can't detail to you enough the incredibly dangerous aspect to knives. To put it into some sort of perspective, we perform an eye-opening training scenario where you step out some 10 metres, I suppose, and a colleague comes at you with a rubber knife or a black marker. By the time you unclip your holster, draw and bring your firearm up on target, you may have already been stuck by that knife or marker at least once, maybe even twice. So in this case, I'm not 10 metres away, I'm 5 or 6 metres from the offender who has a large knife and is only 2 or so metres behind me to a high drop-off at the edge of the platform. I knew I needed to get my firearm out. Time and distance was everything. He held the knife on clear display in front of his stomach, yet remarkably not one person seemed to notice. I had to keep him calm, but I had to get my firearm out while minimising risk to the commuters. I was also conscious of informing Pete and Janine of my situation, but should I alert the offender, I was concerned how quick he could close on me if he decided to take me on. Should he do so, I knew there was no train behind me, and even though it was a long drop to the track, it was an effective escape path. But he was already armed, I was holstered, and I needed to get my firearm out without making him react adversely. The offender turned his head to the right, either because someone had said something or he noticed the doors closing, and it provided me with just enough of an opportunity. 
It was fortunate that the firearm came out quickly and smoothly on the first attempt, and I snatched it out of the holster and hid it out of view behind my right leg. Mark looked back, but by this time I had moved into a bladed and balanced shooting position and raised my left hand in a calming open and outstretched motion. I gently called out to him again, as the first and best weapon you have is your voice. Hey, it's all good, Mark. Let's be cool. Just put the knife on the ground. Come on, mate. Just put it on the ground. And now his head swiveled the other way as he heard Pete and Janine running down the platform in our direction. Both of them had already drawn their firearms and the offender immediately reacted by raising their knife above his head where the sunlight caught the side of the large wide blade. I don't know if it was the reflection of the sun or the fact the knife was now a clear and obvious display, but it made the few people remaining near him finally pay attention and run. And run they did, in all directions, screaming all the way. Mark, be cool. Put it on the ground, I gently encouraged him. But strangely, he didn't appear to be aware of the commotion of the screaming passengers, and he looked back at me, still without having said a word. I repeated the same request. Hey, Mark, mate, just put the knife on the ground. Everything's cool. Just put it on the ground. I don't actually know why, but he snapped. He snatched the knife down from above his head and for someone supposedly drug-affected, quickly and accurately pushed the tip into the left side of his neck. While it didn't initially appear to puncture his skin, the pressure of the tip of the blade was obvious and he tilted his head sideways in response to it. As he pushed the knife upwards, I snatched the firearm away from behind my leg and pointed it straight at his chest. And then in unison, the three of us screamed the same message that we'd been trained in over and over again. Put it down. Put the knife down. Put the knife down. Put it on the ground. Mark took a step backwards and leaned against the side of the stationary train with the knife still firmly pressed against his throat. Shit, what's next? Now a quick side note here that one of the explicit and legal reasons we are permitted to discharge our firearm is for the prevention of suicide. Isn't that a little oxymoronic? Shoot someone to stop them from potentially killing themselves? I'm only six metres away, but could I risk a shot? Through the glass of the train behind him, I could see there were passengers. Should I shoot? Did I need to? How high is the threat level? It was only him and no others at risk. Do I risk others for the sake of one? Am I at risk? I knew the odds were good I'd comfortably hit his centre body mass at this close range, but if I didn't or there was a ricochet, what could be the consequence? I had to de-escalate the situation, so I released my left hand from the double-handed grip around my firearm and once again raised it out in front of me. I partially lowered the front sights of the Glock and motioned a calming gesture with my free hand. Easy, Mark, easy. Let's sort this out because everything has a solution. I know you want to go to the welfare office. I'm happy to take you there. You can have a chat with them and we'll sort it out. But that wasn't his solution. He dragged the belly of the knife downwards to a horizontal position against his throat and blood began to drip from the side of his neck where the tip had been. 
it was done in my mind. His action made it appear obvious he was going to slit his throat, and as long as it takes to blink an eye, I made my decision. I decided should he begin to do it, I would leave it to Pete and Janine to react, as there were too many variables should I fire. They would be firing along the length of the side of the train, and that would negate impacting anything else, or I would be firing towards it. However, should he decide to come at me, I would commit to firing, and hope that Janine and Pete held back so we didn't get caught in a potential crossfire. With the three of us continuing to yell at him to comply, the offender screamed out for the first time. I quickly returned my left hand back onto the butt of the Glock and raised it to point at the centre body mass in that two-handed grip. I needed both hands on the firearm to ensure accuracy. He dropped his eyes and he pushed off the train as if to position himself to charge. He bent down and ever so gently placed the knife on the ground. We rushed him, kicking the knife away in the process and cuffed him to the rear. The commuters inside the train, who had actually been aware of what was transpiring, loudly applauded us. The three of us were awarded district commendations for our actions that day, and that incident taught me a number of invaluable lessons that I was to successfully use throughout my career. However, as I retell this story and reflect back on how it went down, the most notable thing in my mind was my actions allowed me to go home, put my head on my pillow with a clear conscience, and not to be subjected to reoccurring nightmares of what could have been. If you're enjoying these episodes and would like to be informed when a new episode is posted, please follow and support me on my Instagram page, truecrime.ericwelsh. Thank you.